Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 will also have it projected, of course, uh, on your screen. Uh, But today we're in our seventh sermon in a series in Acts entitled To the End of the Earth. And last week we began Acts chapter 2, which records for us the unique event of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the people of God. Uh, Today we are considering uh, the second part of Pentecost um, from a sermon that I've entitled Lessons from Pentecost. And so wherever you are worshiping with us, please stand And we stand as an act of worship as we read and receive God's holy word given to us. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Uh, proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And would you join me in prayer once more? Father, we ask your blessing upon the preaching of your word. We ask your blessing upon the hearing of your word. And we ask your blessing upon the application of your word. From start to finish, Holy Spirit, we ask that you administer to us through this life-giving word, your word, and build us up, your church, your people. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're beginning Acts 2, and Acts 2 is very important to Christianity. You know, how important is it? Well, everything that happens in the book of Acts happens because of Acts 2. In fact, I would go on to say everything recorded in every church history book for the past 2,000 years has happened because of Acts chapter 2. And then to go even further, everything that's happening now in our modern contemporary church today, which will one day be church history, is happening because of Acts chapter 2. There is no way for us to downplay the significance of Acts 2 and its value, this day of Pentecost and what that means for the church of Jesus Christ. Because what happened on the day of Pentecost is that God opened up the heavens and the resurrected and ascended Christ, he poured down on us his life-giving spirit. And by doing that, He began a new era of redemptive history, one in which the Spirit of God not only came to rest upon uh, people temporarily, but permanently, one in which the Spirit did not come to just rest upon the leaders of Israel, but every believer in the covenant community. Now, there will never be, nor does there ever need to be another Pentecost. 
But we still need the ministry of the Holy Spirit to fill us and to lead us and to empower us just like he did the first disciples. The question is, though, how should we expect the Holy Spirit to move in our midst? If we need the Holy Spirit's ministry to us today, what will that look like? Should we all begin now seeking to be slain in the Spirit? Should we seek to receive a second baptism of the Spirit and speaking tongues? Is that what we're talking about? Or, or should we relegate the Spirit to an event in the past and disregard him as irrelevant for our age? He worked then, but not now. Or do we reduce the Spirit to be some kind of mere influence or inspiration on and over people? Well, neither of these approaches is right. And so as we look at our passage, we want to consider what does that ministry of the Spirit look like? And we're going to talk about two things we see, two lessons about the ministry of the Spirit we see at Pentecost that will also apply to our church today in the 21st century. Now, here's our gospel truth, our one-sentence summary. The Holy Spirit glorifies the Son of God and unifies the people of God. The ministry of the Holy Spirit The Spirit glorifies the Son of God, and He unifies the people of God. Now, before we get to these two lessons, let's understand what's going on here in our passage. So, keeping your Bible open or looking at the verses projected, verse 5 begins in this way. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, it's important that the setting is Jerusalem because the disciples are in Jerusalem because Jesus had promised them the Spirit will come to you, so wait in Jerusalem. And so in obedience to Jesus, the disciples for the past 10 days have been waiting patiently, trusting in the promises of God while in Jerusalem. Now, in this city, we're told that there are devout Jews gathered together. All Jews from all different places, and they're what we call diaspora Jews, meaning that they were Jews born in other countries who were now in Jerusalem at this time. And you need to understand that uh, at this point in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's very different than in the Old Testament. At this point, Jews were spread out all over the Roman Empire. And as a result, they didn't all speak Hebrew and and Aramaic. Uh, For for many of them, their native language was something else. For example, you've probably met uh, Koreans born outside of Korea or born outside of the United States. I'm sure at this point in your life, you've probably met a Korean born in, in South America who speaks Spanish primarily and fluently. You know, it was in seminary that, that I met uh, my first Korean German for the first time, which was an interesting phenomenon. They, they spoke English like, you know, they sounded like Arnold Schwarzenegger Kim. Um, they, they had this distinct accent and it made me realize, man, Koreans are all over the world. Well, the same is true, of course. All these different ethnicities spread out all over the world. And in Acts 2, we have this, this kind of international scene. Jews were international. But by God's providence, they were gathered in Jerusalem on this day of Pentecost. This is important. Then we get to verse 6. It continues. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. The disciples have the spirit in them and they begin speaking in these different tongues or languages. And the emphasis of this miracle is on the fact that each Jew 
Uh, the emphasis in the miracle is not on the fact that each Jew heard their own language. The emphasis of the miracle is that the disciples spoke another language. And that's an important distinction because some people think the miracle is that the disciples were speaking their normal tongue. They're speaking Hebrew, they're speaking Aramaic. And somehow supernaturally the Jews heard in their own language as if the Holy Spirit were dubbing their language over their speech. It reminds me of when I was younger and watched those early Jackie Chan films with the worst English dubbing that you could ever imagine over their Chinese. But that's not the miracle that's happening. The miracle is that the Holy Spirit is supernaturally giving the disciples speech in a different tongue, in a different language that was not their own. And this is important because it means the Spirit was filling them with his power and his presence to do a miraculous thing. He was using the disciples to do something miraculous. You know, I led a mission trip to Cambodia a few years ago. And uh, long story short, one of our team members burned himself badly on the exhaust of a motorcycle. And uh, it was problematic because he needed uh, some treatment. But of course, I didn't speak any Khmer. And I remember we went to the local pharmacy and I tried my best using charades and hand motions, you know, signaling what had happened. I said he was rum, 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 and and I was rubbing my legs and I was trying to communicate how he had burned himself. and And the employee just kind of looked at me and I was so frustrated. I looked at the guy and I said, man, I wish I just knew how to say burn in Kamai. And the, the, the employee then uh, pointed me at this box and I turned the box around in English, it said burn ointment. And at the moment I thought, how did she know? You know, I know the spirit is, is at work in missions. Did I just speak, come on, did I just speak tongues? And, and it turns out that um, she spoke English the whole time and she just watched me act a fool. You know, was the miracle that the disciples already knew these, this language, these languages in the spirit just kind of uh, brought that out of them? No. The miracle is also not that the Jews received the special gift of hearing. The miracle is that the disciples spoke a language that they never knew before. And I'm emphasizing this because the point is how the spirit is displaying his power through these disciples and the witness they're about to give. So let's continue verses seven to eight. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us, each of us in his own native language? Now, what we have going on here is that these international Jews are so surprised because Galilee had a reputation for being an uncultured region. So everyone's wondering how the heck would they know these foreign languages because Galilee, that district was anything but cosmopolitan. If Jerusalem was Philadelphia, Galilee was Lancaster. And we actually see this bias happening a few chapters later in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Uh, these people say about the disciples from Galilee. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. In fact, you even remember when Jesus, who came from Nazareth, which was a city in the district of Galilee, people said, could anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet here they are receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit in order to overcome any barrier to testify and share the gospel. These un 
educated, common men are receiving the power of the Spirit to give testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So verses 9 now to 11 continue. Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now you read this list of places and For all we know, these are places in Narnia or Middle Earth. We don't know because we don't know where any of these places are. But the original listeners and readers would have been familiar with this list because this list has been mentioned before in the Bible. In a a section of the Bible called the Table of Nations, in Genesis chapter 10, uh, we see recorded 70 nations that represent how wide and diverse humanity became after Noah's Ark and flood. The flood came, everyone was destroyed. There was a family of eight. They slowly started repopulating. And then the table of nations, Genesis 10, shows how vast um, the people of, uh, how vast humanity has become. And Acts 2 then is written, you know, thousands of years later, and it shows a a representation of that list, but now with the updated, you know, modern names of the places. Now, this connection is significant because right after the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, we get Genesis 11. And Genesis 11 tells us the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, remember what Babel is. Babel marked the apex of human defiance. Mankind tried to reach God on their own by building a tower to reach heaven. And as a result, we read in Genesis 11 verses 7 to 8, God saying, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And ever since that day, a language barrier separated the nations. But God was up to something at Pentecost. Because when he sent his spirit and gave the gift of different languages to the disciples, God was reversing the curse of Babel. The curse at Babel was that people were divided. But the blessing of Pentecost were that the people were being unified by the spirit. And the spirit's ministry was to let each hear the gospel in their own language. You see, Babel was the mighty work of man. The gospel is the mighty work of God. Babel is humanity descending to heaven in order to reach the holy God. But the gospel is the holy God descending to earth in order to reach sinful man. And so what we see is Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection took on the curse of Eden. He was cut and crucified and banished. But he also began reversing the curse of Babel. At Pentecost, the Spirit unites people now together, not around a common language, but now around a common lamb, the Lamb of God slain for our sins. And finally, this section ends with verses 12 and 13. 
And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. And this whole scene ends uh, with two types of responses, belief and unbelief. You know, some people are amazed. Some people are dismissive. They mock and they belittle the work of the Holy Spirit, accusing the disciples of being drunk. This was pretty much the same way that people responded to Jesus. Some received him, some rejected him. In the same way here we see at Pentecost, some marveled and others mocked. Now, that's our passage. And so what I want to do is now spend the rest of our time together considering these two lessons of the ministry of the Holy Spirit from Pentecost that we see at work today as the Spirit ministers to us in the 21st century. The first lesson is this. The Spirit's ministry is to glorify God's Son. The Spirit's ministry is to glorify God's Son. What is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit? And since we love to stand at the center of attention, we oftentimes think in terms of what the Holy Spirit can do for us. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts. He walks with us. He's our helper. He's our comforter. And yes, the Holy Spirit certainly does all of these things, but you have to understand his primary ministry is not Christian-centered. His primary ministry is Christ-centered. The primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is not about us, but about Jesus. And you see it in this very text. When the Spirit falls upon the disciples and gives them the supernatural gift of tongues, filling them with gifts, what was the purpose of this gift? The main purpose of the gifts was not for their personal edification or for their personal experience. The main point of these gifts was for the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Why did the Spirit give the gift of tongues? So that others might hear about, look upon, and trust in Jesus. That's why in verse 11 we read, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And what is the mighty works of God? Well, the climax, the pinnacle of the mighty works of God is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, using the same expression, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, his mighty work, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You know, the Spirit's ministry among his people then and now is to shine the spotlight on Jesus so that others might know him, worship him, and glorify him. Now, there may be an impulse in each one of us that gets a bit defensive for the Holy Spirit. You may wonder, well, if you say that, are we not treating the Holy Spirit as secondary? But the Holy Spirit is not like us. He is not selfish. He is not self-centered. And the Holy Spirit doesn't confuse being honored with receiving glory for himself. We conflate the two. Being honored means receiving the glory, but the Spirit does not. We think being honored means putting the spotlight on ourselves, not on another. But when we think that way, we must be careful not to project our egocentrism on the Holy Spirit. I would be honored if I received the glory. 
So are you telling me the spirit gives the glory to Christ? Isn't that mean he's not being honored? No, 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 not at all. The spirit's role, his ministry is to magnify Christ. He delights in it. In the same way, think about this. A good chef is honored when the food he prepares is enjoyed. A good carpenter is honored when the furniture he makes is appreciated. A good parent is honored when their child is successful. In the same way, the Spirit of God is honored when the Son of God is central and exalted and glorified. And that's why Jesus said in John 16, verses 13 to 14, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit's ministry to us is that he stirs our longings and our affections and our desires for Jesus. The Spirit opens the eyes of our hearts, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1, so that we may see and savor the beauty of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Anyway, have you ever been asked if you are a uh, sweet person or a, or a salty person, if you uh, prefer something, a snack like cookies or a snack like potato chips? Well, you know, if you've ever baked cookies from scratch before, you'll actually know, surprisingly, as I was quite surprised, that an essential ingredient of this sweet treat is actually salt. Salt is a vital part of the recipe for actually for many, many dessert dishes. And it seems surprising, but there's actually a scientific reason uh, where the salt actually enhances, the purpose of salt, the function of salt, is that it enhances and intensifies other flavors. And so why do you put salt in chocolate chip cookies? Because the presence of salt helps you appreciate the sweetness of the cookie even more. In the same way, the presence of the Spirit helps us appreciate the sweetness of Jesus more and more. His presence enhances and intensifies our view and our vision of Christ. You know, the Spirit never desires to turn Christianity into spirit-anity. His ministry in our lives and in our churches for us uh, to cherish more and to make more central and to make more clear Jesus Christ on the forefront of our minds. Now, if that's the ministry of the Spirit, that he came to give gifts, not for merely personal edification and personal experience, but to exalt Christ, what does that mean for us? Does that mean we never talk about the Spirit? No, no, no. It means we plead and we pray with the Holy Spirit. But for what? for us to make much of Jesus. Spirit of God, would you fall on me? Not so that I have these experiences, but that in me, Christ is exalted, that my eyes can see the magnitude and glory of Jesus Christ. You know, more than asking the Spirit, would you give me gifts? Ask, would you help me glorify Christ? More, more than give me, give me experiences of your presence. Say, Spirit, would you help me exalt Christ? Spirit, would you, would you move in me? Rather, Spirit, would you magnify Christ? And I believe if you pray in that way, then the Spirit will come and he will give you sweet, sweet experiences. And he will give you deep and lasting emotions. But those won't draw attention to himself or even to yourself but it'll be drawing your attention to Christ. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He glorifies the Son of God. Well, here's the second. The second lesson we see is the Spirit's ministry 
is to unify God's people. At Pentecost, we see the beginning of nations coming together as one. The gift of the Spirit is to reverse the curse of Babel, and so the language barrier is removed. But how? How is that language barrier removed? And this is interesting. The blessing of Pentecost and the work of the Spirit is not by getting rid of the different languages, nor is it by teaching everybody one new language. It's by allowing the disciples to speak everybody else's language. You see, what was happening at Pentecost is God is not squashing or removing diversity. He is using that diversity and out of it, he's bringing about the unity of his people around Jesus. Meaning for us that the unity of God's people is not based on uniformity. The unity of God's people is not based upon God's people adopting one specific Hebrew identity and Hebrew culture and Hebrew practice and Hebrew appearance. In fact, the very opposite is true. The unity of God's people preserves people's diversity. As the resurrected Christ is uniting us to himself by the Spirit, he is uniting us to one another by the Spirit in all of our diversity, in all of our differences, in all of our distinctions. The only conformity Christians are called to is conformity to Christ's image, not one another's image. Now, now really think about this with me. At Pentecost, the Spirit didn't reverse the diversity of Babel. The Spirit of God is reversing the curse of Babel, but he doesn't reverse the diversity of Babel, meaning diversity was not the curse. Diversity is not what's wrong with the world. What's the curse? The curse is the confusion and the separation and the division. Instead, what do we see the Spirit doing with the diversity? He is creating a beautiful mosaic of God's multicolored, multi-ethnic people by uniting us around the risen Savior. And in this way, Acts 2 was a glimpse of heaven on earth. What's happening at Pentecost is a glimpse of what we see in the vision of John in Revelation chapter 5, where we read the elders saying this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We see that heavenly vision again in Revelation 7, Verse 9, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is the picture, the glimpse of heaven that we see, not only in Revelation, but previewed at Pentecost. Now, friends, do you know what this means? It means that it's naive to say, in the house of the Lord, there are no Asians, Blacks, Whites, or Hispanics. There are only Christians. That sounds like a very Christian thing to say, but it is very not. It's so naive. Do you know why? Because what we see happening in Revelation is God himself proudly boasting, look at all my diverse people. I have Asians and I have Whites and Blacks and I have Hispanics. 
You see, God is not only proud of, God is pleased with the diversity of his people united by his spirit to his son. And that's why the disciples were called to witness the gospel in all of these diverse languages. If this is true, what does that mean for us? If that's the glimpse of what we're seeing in Acts 2 in the ministry of the Spirit to unite us in all of our diversity, what does that mean for us? Well, here my application is going to be very specific because the majority of our congregation of our church is Asian and specifically Korean American. Now, if you're not, uh, first, I hope that this will still speak to you regardless. And second, if you're not, I hope it helps you understand um, the other brothers and sisters in Christ who are different than you and need to hear and apply the gospel to their lives and their particular struggles. So let me apply this truth in two ways. First is this. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. No specific racial or ethnic group is any less because they do not look like and do things like the majority dominant group. You know, for a lot of Asian Americans, we have struggled or we do struggle with a self-directed inner racism. We resent our status as minorities and we envy the status of the majority. And because of that, we often feel like second-class citizens in the world. And then we enter the church and often that feeling doesn't go away. And so some of us have learned that the way we deal with this is to despise some of the things that the Korean immigrant church has done. And then we dismiss those practices, those acts of piety, because they look so different than the practices of the majority culture church. We are sick of explaining why Koreans pray aloud. We are sick of making defense for why Koreans pray so early in the morning. We're tired of explaining, no, I go to a Korean church, but I'm in an EM and we speak English and not Korean. We do church just like you. And all of this makes us therefore long to be like everybody else. We want to be more first class. We want to be more fitting in, less sticking out. But the disciples weren't requiring conformity to what they were. The Spirit of God didn't fall on them and then they said, everybody be Jewish, learn Hebrew, get circumcised, become like us. It wasn't a conformity into some kind of majority culture. Rather, what the gospel was saying is Christ loves the diversity of his bride. So he has purchased each one of you uniquely at the cost of his own blood. And if you really understand that about the gospel, it does two things. First, it elevates those who feel and think like they are second-class citizens. It elevates you because Christ loves you so much. And second, it humbles those who think others are second-class citizens because you realize Christ loves the other person so much too. United to Christ by the Spirit, we are all heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Second, we are necessary citizens in the kingdom of God. We are necessary citizens. The Spirit reversed Babel's division and yet maintained Babel's diversity. 
because it was God's plan to have a multicolored, multi-language, multi-ethnic, multicultural people. It was the vision that he set forth for us, which means that every ethnicity is a necessary color on God's palette because he is painting a wonderful portrait of his people with a wide array of diverse colors. That means you're not only welcomed in the kingdom, you're necessary in the kingdom. God wants to display his glory to the cosmos through the diversity of the gathered, redeemed people on the final day. Therefore, it is not more Christian to insist that in the church we be colorblind. It is less Christian. God sees color and he says it's beautiful. That means we need to learn to see color too. And how even we are necessary, a unique color that he's choosing to paint with. You know, I say this uh, as your pastor, we are a Korean American majority church. And sometimes it's difficult to uh, have to answer all the time of, of why we are so. You know, why aren't you more multi ethnic, meaning why do the Koreans gather together? And and the assumption there is what? Why don't you enter into majority, you know, dominant culture, white churches? Well, if your vision for is multi-ethnicity, then then I would say it's actually the other way around. You're more than welcome to join our church to help us pursue multi-ethnicity. You know, it's true. As Korean Americans, our view of spirituality, uh, our practices, um, maybe a little bit different. We've inherited it from a heritage of faith, a, a genealogy, uh, a lineage of faith. Um, and so, yes, there is a lot for us to learn from other Christians, but that also means there's a lot for us to teach other Christians. Our diversity is not a source of, of curse to ourselves. Our, our diversity is a source of blessing to others. And you must know that. You are necessary in the kingdom of God. This is the beauty of what we see happening here at Pentecost. And friends, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit started what he will one day finish. On that day, many heard in their own tongues. They heard in their own tongues about the mighty works of God. But on that final day, many will declare in their own tongues the mighty works of God the glory and praise of the crucified and risen Lamb of God, the Savior of sinners. Now, there's so much more that we could say and focus on, but I wanted to focus on these two things about the ministry of the Spirit. If the same Spirit who fell upon Pentecost and empowered the church for ministry would fall on us today, in the 21st century, what would that look like? First, we would be people who long for, desire for Jesus to be magnified and glorified in our lives and in our church. The second thing, we would be a people who celebrate and pursue unity as God's diverse people as we gather together to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Gather together not by a common language, but by the Lamb of God crucified and now risen. Let us pray.